The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Acts, and today the next passage we come to is Acts 21, 17 through 40, and it says, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. When Paul took the men in the next day, he purified himself along with them and went in the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he has brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Triophanes, the Ephesian, with them in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. As As they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that the that all Jerusalem was confused. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. When the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, he inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came in, came up to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who was recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus, Silea, a citizen of no obscure city, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. 
And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. May God bless the reading of his word. Jen, quite the passage. Let's pray this morning. Father, what a privilege it is for us to open and study your word. We understand that these words come from your very mouth. They are God-breathed and Scripture says, profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. So now help us by your Holy Spirit to be thoroughly equipped for each of those things and ultimately come to a deeper knowledge of you, a deeper love for you, a deeper relationship with you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. One of my most interesting uh, memories from high school took place on the eve of my graduation. Uh, Actually, it was something that I did. Uh, Since I was the leader of the Christian club in my high school, the class president, who was in charge of planning the, uh, the baccalaureate service, asked me if I would like to say a prayer during that service. And so I happily agreed to do so. But then I got to thinking about it, and I decided that there really needed to be a clear gospel witness at this baccalaureate service. And since it was a public high school and the class president was uh, rather nominal in her Christian affiliation, I was pretty sure that the only way there would be a clear gospel witness is if I was the one to do that. And so when the time came and I was called up to the podium in front of, I don't know, maybe five or six hundred people in order to say my prayer, I kind of hijacked the service a little bit. Uh, Before I led in prayer, I spent about, I would say, a good ten minutes giving a very clear gospel presentation. I mean, I told people everything. I told them about sin and warning them of God's judgment and appealing to them to turn to Christ for rescue. And then after I spent about 10 minutes doing that, I then led in prayer as I had been asked to do. Uh, Needless to say, my my little speech um, ruffled a few feathers. It had made quite the impression on some people. I don't think the class president ever spoke to me again after that. And I'm sure it uh, ruffled some other feathers as well. I don't know. I mean, that was kind of at the end of my high school career anyway. So I guess I just went out with a bang. But uh, looking back, I'm not sure whether or not that was the best way to give a gospel witness or not, but it certainly seemed like a good idea at the time. And yet the courage I exhibited at that baccalaureate service pales in comparison to the courage Paul exhibits here in Acts chapters 21 and going into chapter 22. And by the way, I want to make it clear that when it comes to being a courageous witness, I am confident that I have failed far more than I have succeeded. All right. Yet even at what was perhaps my most courageous moment, 
I didn't even come close to exhibiting the kind of courage Paul exhibits here. So if there were like a Christian version of the Medal of Honor, then I'm pretty sure that we would have to nominate Paul to receive that honor in light of the way he conducts himself in this passage. Now, Jen stopped reading at the end of chapter 21, just as Paul was beginning to tell the crowd about Jesus. We'll see what he actually says to the crowd next week when we look at chapter 22. But already in the text, we can observe and appreciate the remarkable courage that Paul exhibits in his decision to view this chaotic situation as a gospel opportunity. Now, I know for me personally, when I think about the way that Paul conducts himself here and the courage it must have taken for him to talk about Jesus, even in the midst of such hostility, I can't help but be challenged to exhibit more courage in my own day-to-day gospel witness. Uh, I imagine that for most of us who are Christians, the biggest hindrance to telling more people about Jesus when you get right down to it is that we're to some degree afraid. We're afraid of what people might think about us or at how our attempt to share the gospel might be perceived or of the effect that it might have on our relationship with a person. Or maybe we're afraid of what questions they might ask us or how good of a job we'll do. And so how then can we overcome these fears and exhibit the kind of courage Paul exhibits in this passage. Well, that's what we'll discuss this morning. And I'll give you a hint. It's not just about us working up the courage to talk to someone, but even more fundamentally, it's about changing the way we think. But before we get into that, let's take a look at how this chaotic situation in Acts 21 comes about. In verses 17 through 26, Paul arrives in Jerusalem, goes in to see the leaders of the church there, and is told that a significant portion of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are highly suspicious of him, and perhaps even a little hostile because of some reports they received about him. They've heard that Paul's been going around the Roman Empire telling Jews to forsake the Old Testament law, and That doesn't sit well with them, because even though they've embraced Jesus, they're still quite devoted to the Old Testament law and to various Jewish traditions that have been passed down to them. They aren't viewing the law as a means to salvation any longer, but they are still very passionate about the law. And so the leaders of the church of Jerusalem advise Paul to demonstrate that he doesn't have anything against the Old Testament law, and the way they suggest he demonstrate that is by participating in a ceremonial purification at the temple, and also by sponsoring another ritual that was associated with the law that was called a Nazarite vow. Paul had actually himself taken a Nazarite vow earlier, back in Acts chapter 18, but now he sponsors others as they complete the vow. And so Paul agrees to participate in this. This isn't something that Uh, is necessary for Christians to do, and yet it doesn't contradict the gospel either. So Paul agrees to participate. In addition to going in for his own ceremonial purification, he sponsors these four other men who had taken the Nazarite vow and helps them 
complete the requirements. The goal, again, was to demonstrate that the rumors against him were false. However, things don't really go according to plan. Look at verses 27 to 29. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So, while Paul's at the temple trying to demonstrate his regard and appreciation for the Old Testament law, a group of Jews from Asia, so not Jewish Christians, but just Jews, who Paul had severely upset in the course of his gospel ministry, see Paul at the temple. And they falsely accuse him of several things, including bringing a Gentile into the temple, which was a big no-no. For some reason, these dreams assumed uh, that because they saw Paul with this Gentile associate of his, Trophimus, walking around in the city of Jerusalem earlier in the day, that he must have brought Trophimus into the temple, which wasn't true. We then read this in verses 30 and 31. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So talk about something blowing up in your face. Right? Things did not go the way Paul intended. Uh, in response to these false accusations that the Jews from Asia make, the crowd is infuriated and starts savagely beating Paul and trying to kill him. And they would have succeeded except that the Romans intervened. The city of Jerusalem, of course, was under the control of the Roman government. And just outside the temple grounds, looking over the temple complex, was something called Fort Antonia, which was the headquarters of the Roman occupation force for that region and home to, at times, as many as a thousand Roman soldiers. And the chief commander of those soldiers, called the Tribune, sees what this Jewish mob is doing to Paul. We then read this about his response in verses 32 through 36. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. So just pause right there. Imagine how it must have felt for Paul in that moment. I mean, he had just been savagely beaten by an angry mob for who knows how long before the Roman soldiers got to him. And now he was in Roman custody and unsure of what was going to happen to him. Don't forget, right, how Pontius Pilate 
had let the Jews have their way in crucifying Jesus. So there was precedent for just the, those in the government being very pragmatic in their approach to justice. This tribune could have very easily done that same thing. Paul had no way of knowing what was going to happen. And of course, this mob is still trying to get at him and to, to kill him, calling out for his death. So if that were you, what would be at the forefront of your mind in that moment? Probably survival, right? If it were me, I'm sure I would be thinking, what can I do to survive this situation? Well, let's see what Paul does. Look at verses 37 through 40. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. And then the next chapter, chapter 22, records what he actually said. Basically, Paul told them about how Jesus changed his life. We'll look at what he actually says next week. But for today, it's enough to know that he tells them about Jesus and the way Jesus radically transformed him. So like I said, if there were a Christian version of the Medal of Honor, we would definitely have to nominate Paul to receive it for the way he calms this angry crowd down and proceeds to tell them about Jesus. And that, I believe, is the main idea of this passage, that Paul courageously bears witness about Jesus in the midst of a chaotic situation. Paul courageously bears witness about Jesus in the midst of a chaotic situation. And uh, there are two elements of Paul's witness I'd like to explore with the remainder of our time together. First, the driving force that compelled Paul's witness. And second, the established mentality that enabled Paul's witness. So first, the driving force that compelled Paul's witness. Paul makes it clear in many of his writings how he feels about the Jews who continue to reject Jesus. Perhaps the clearest reference is in Romans 9, 1 through 3, where he states that I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed. And cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's how he felt about the Jews who hadn't yet embraced the gospel. He was burdened for them and grieved over their spiritual condition to such an extent, almost of wishing that he could switch places with them and be cut off from Christ if it would mean that they'd be saved. Obviously, that kind of thing isn't possible, but that's the way Paul felt toward them. That's the love that he had 
And so back in Acts 21, I believe we can confidently say that the courage Paul exhibits in telling this hostile Jewish crowd about Jesus is an outgrowth of his deep love for them. And think about the people he was loving. Remember, this was the crowd that had just beat him to a bloody pulp. Yet Paul, nevertheless, loved them. So much that he seeks to share with them about Jesus. It reminds me of what Jesus himself teaches in Romans or in Luke 6, 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. You know, that may very well be the most radical teaching in the entire Bible. I mean, we have enough, we have enough trouble loving people who kind of get on our nerves a little bit, right? But to love our enemies, that's radical. Yet that's the kind of love that Jesus calls us to exhibit. I remember hearing about a, a Christian back in the 1500s who lived in Spain, and the Spanish authorities were, especially at that time, extremely hostile to the Protestant Reformation. And one ruler in particular, called the Duke of Alba, was determined to do everything he could to viciously oppose the Reformation. Uh, he persecuted Protestants to such lengths that his rule was called the Reign of Terror. And his governing council was called the Bloody Council, since it ordered the executions of so many Protestants. However, this one Christian, a Protestant, who was imprisoned for his biblical beliefs and sentenced to die, somehow managed to escape from the prison where he was being held. And this escape took place in the wintertime. And as he was being pursued by a single soldier, he came to a lake that was only partially frozen over. But of course, the guy didn't really have many options, and so he just ran out onto the ice and somehow managed to make it to the other side of the lake. But right when he made it to the other side, he heard the soldier who was pursuing him crying out for help. And so he turned around and saw that this guy had fallen through the ice and was uh, very likely to drown. And so he had a decision to make, right? And at the risk of his own life, he reportedly went back out onto the ice, knowing full well that he could be captured again and eventually executed, or that he himself could fall through the ice and rescued that soldier who was drowning. Friends, that is the kind of love that Jesus calls us to exhibit. And that we see Paul exhibiting back in our main passage. Obviously, that's not the kind of thing that we're able to do in our own strength or through our own abilities. That's the kind of love the Holy Spirit has to put into our hearts and enable us to carry out. And I believe that's something we really need to take to heart, especially with the way things are in our society right now. We live in a society in which people are often, unfortunately, 
quite hateful in the way they interact with each other. There's just an incredible amount of venom and vitriol in our society that's being exchanged on a regular basis uh, to the extent that such dialogue has now come to be regarded as, I guess, relatively normal. Uh, it's now considered normal to rip your opponents to shreds on social media. And yet that actually presents those of us who are Christians with an amazing opportunity. An opportunity to stand out from the rest of the world in a powerful and compelling way by loving our enemies. In fact, I'd even say that loving our enemies might very well be the single greatest way in which we can win a hearing for the gospel in our society. So remember that the next time someone publicly misrepresents your views as a Christian. Just as the Jews misrepresented Paul's views in Acts 21. Remember that the next time they slander your character. Just as the Jews slandered Paul's character. Remember that the next time someone insults you, mocks you, or ridicules you. Whenever any of these things happens to us, our natural tendency, of course, is to lash out right, and repay tit for tat. Yet that's not the way Jesus tells us to respond, is it? Now, he tells us to love the people around us even when they're hateful toward us. So you know, maybe the next time you're reading that latest news article uh, by a journalist who obviously despises Christians and Christianity, just take a moment and pray for that journalist. Pray that God would open their eyes to the gospel and would reveal himself to them and would rescue them from their sin. And if someone ever treats you poorly to your face, of course, do the same thing. And see if you can't find ways in which you can serve them and bless them and demonstrate the love of Christ for them. Because you see, this isn't just a love that Jesus commands. It's a love he exemplifies. Jesus was slandered in his show trial, subjected to unimaginable suffering in his flogging crucifixion, and publicly humiliated as he hung on that cross. Yet, how did he respond to the people who were doing all that to him? He prayed in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. So the ultimate example of love for our enemies is Jesus himself. As he hung on that cross, praying for the forgiveness of the very people who put him there. And of course, the reason he even allowed himself to be crucified in the first place was to redeem sinners. To pay for the sins of the very people who had so outrageously rebelled against him. 
Romans 5.8 tells us that it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. That's the love that Jesus has shown toward us and that he calls us to show toward others, even our enemies. And back in our main passage, that's what we see Paul doing. The driving force that compelled his courageous witness, even in such an extreme situation, was the love of Christ for his Jewish kinsmen. Then secondly, not only would I like to note the driving force that compelled Paul's witness, I'd also like to say something about the established mentality that enabled Paul's witness. As I mentioned before, if I were Paul and found myself in that situation, having uh, just been severely beaten and a bloody mess from that, and in the hands of pragmatic uh, government officials and with a mob calling out for my execution. My main thought, and quite probably my only thought, would be, how can I get myself out of this situation? I probably wouldn't be thinking very much at all about telling people about Jesus because I'd be too wrapped up in my own welfare. Yet Paul's mentality is a lot different than that. He actually views this situation as a witnessing opportunity. His primary concern isn't his own survival or self-preservation, but rather sharing the gospel with this crowd. And I believe the reason he was not only willing to do that, but even able to have the presence of mind to do that, is because he was surrendered to the sovereign purposes of God. That's the mentality that enabled his witness. Paul was surrendered to God's will, whatever that might be. And make no mistake, Paul was well aware of the dangers. If you remember from the past several weeks, Paul had been warned on at least three separate occasions about the dangers that awaited him in Jerusalem. We saw that back in Acts 20, 23, 21.4, and 21.11. Yet his mind was made up, right? Paul was determined to go to Jerusalem regardless of what happened to him. As he stated back in Acts 20, 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Friends, Paul didn't care whether he lived or died. He just wanted to testify to the gospel. He also says essentially the same thing again in Romans, or Acts 21, 13. I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And listen to what he writes in Galatians 2.20. This is perhaps the most revealing statement of all as we seek to dissect Paul's mentality. He declares, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So in a sense, Paul regarded himself as already dead 
I have been crucified with Christ, he writes. His old self that pursued its own agenda and operated independently from God's will was no more. It had come to a decisive end. It was dead, having been crucified with Christ. Yeah, I'm reminded of that HBO uh, miniseries called uh, The Band of Brothers, many of you have probably seen, about a group of men who were fighting during World War II. And if you've seen it, you may remember that one scene where the lieutenant, uh, Robert Spires, encounters one of his men cowering in a foxhole in the midst of intense combat all around them. And this man was so paralyzed with fear that he couldn't even shoot his gun or even put his finger on the trigger. And so Spire stoops down, and he locks eyes with this guy. And he says to him, the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. The sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function. And that same basic statement can be said of all Christians as well. It's only when we reckon ourselves as dead that we're able to function the way a Christian is supposed to function. And that means giving ourselves to the Lord in absolute surrender. With the mentality that we don't belong to ourselves any longer. But now exist for God's will. God's purposes. And God's glory. That's the mentality Paul had. He lived as one who was crucified with Christ. With the result that it was now long, no longer he who lived, but Christ who lived in him. And so when Paul finds himself in the midst of the chaos of Acts 21, with an angry mob demanding his execution, he's able to view that situation as an opportunity to testify about Jesus. In his mind, he doesn't have anything to lose. Because remember, he's already dead, right? And so he can therefore tell that crowd about Jesus without being afraid of what might happen to him. And so I wonder, have we surrendered ourselves to the Lord in a similar manner? That's what we have to do in order to be a faithful and courageous witness to the people in our lives. And there are numerous aspects of that surrender. For example, we have to surrender, quite often, our desire to be popular and accepted and to have a certain social stand. Really, all that is is pride anyway. Uh, so we have to surrender our pride to the Lord. We may also have to surrender a, a certain dream or ambition that we have for our future. You know, if it becomes widely known in your workplace that you are a devoted Christian, then depending on what your workplace is like, there's a chance that you might not get that promotion you've been hoping for. Yet we have to surrender that desire to the Lord. Or maybe there's a relationship with a particular person that you have to surrender to the Lord and be willing to share the gospel 
with that person regardless of what happens, right? Let the chips fall where they may. Now, hopefully there won't be any damage to that relationship, but surrendering that relationship to the Lord means being willing, at least, to be a faithful witness regardless of what ends up happening. So ask yourself, what are you still holding on to that's keeping you from being a faithful witness for Jesus and that you therefore need to surrender to the Lord? All of this is what it looks like to live as one who's been crucified with Christ. Another way of saying it is in the words of Romans 12, 1, where Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Think about that. A living sacrifice. You know, I've heard it said that the thing about a living sacrifice is that you got to watch it because it has a tendency to crawl off of the altar, right? So that's why we have to present ourselves as a living sacrifice to the Lord, not just one time, but day after day after day. Giving ourselves totally and completely to the Lord. That's the mentality that enabled Paul to be so courageous in our main passage and that should inspire us to exhibit similar courage in our lives as well. And the reason we give ourselves to the Lord in this way is, of course, because of the way in which he has given himself for us. Jesus gave all he had to give. His very life on the cross to pay for our sins. He suffered the judgment that we deserve. He stood in our place. And then three days later, of course, he resurrected from the dead so that he now is able to save everyone who will look to him for rescue. And that involves renouncing our sinful way of living and surrendering every aspect of our lives to the Lord, handing ourselves over to the Lord totally and completely. So have you yet done that this morning? Has there ever been a point in your life that you have come to where you have just given it all? You have surrendered to God. Have you come to understand that there is nothing you can do in and of yourself to be right with God and that it's only through Christ that you can be redeemed? Jesus stands ready to save you even today if you will put your trust in.